Welcome to the podcast of the First Baptist Church of Dumas, Texas, featuring biblical teaching and preaching from God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word. If you live in the Panhandle area and are looking for a church home, we'd love to see you at First Baptist Church. We meet every Lord's Day for Sunday school at 9 a.m. and morning worship at 10.30 a.m. We also have midweek discipleship opportunities for all ages on Wednesdays. For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together. If you want to go ahead and open to the book of 1 Kings, we will be in the first four chapters of Kings tonight, 1 Kings. A little bit of the history leading up to Kings, if you know your books of the Bible, you know right before 1st and 2nd Kings is 1st and 2nd Samuel. 1st and 2nd Samuel is really about two main kings. The first king, of course, is Saul, and the second king is King David. Uh, And what we see between Saul and David is sort of a contrast that we're going to see throughout the rest of the book of the Kings and really throughout the rest of the Bible, uh, leading even, even down to the person and work of Jesus and um, the character, obviously, in the person of Satan. And so we see this contrast between man's king and God's king, uh, man's choice and God's choice. Really, we see the difference between sin and righteousness, between Saul and David. And that's a theme that's going to carry throughout the book of 1 and 2 Kings and the books of 1 and 2 Chronicles. So, in the Jewish Bible, uh, you'll notice, which is just the Old Testament, uh, what we know as the Old Testament, you'll notice that if you look at a Jewish listing of, of the books, Kings is one book. And uh, why we decided to make it two books, I don't know. But it's really just one book. So when I said we're going to do First and Second Kings, and people said we're going to do two books, really we're just doing one book that we have divided into two books. Same thing with Chronicles and same things with, uh, with Samuel. And if you want to, you know, what might be neat for you to do as you read through First and Second Kings is to also read through First and Second Chronicles because they're kind of um, um, interposed on top of one another. And you'll see the same stories kind of repeated. And when we get later into the Kings, you'll see, are, you know, are not these words uh, recorded in the book of the Chronicles? And, the, and Chronicles, are not these words recorded in the book of the Kings? And you'll see those, those echoes go back and forth. So we're picking up in the book of First Kings... Uh, after the reign of Saul and his downfall, and we're going to pick up in the beginning of 1 Kings with, the, the, with the, uh, the last days and the death of King David. So where we start in 1 Kings is Solomon, and we will trace the rest of the story of the kings of Israel and later Judah through the rest of the books. Um, where's my... Here we go. My slideshow went somewhere on me. The book of 1 Kings, for your, your first uh, blank there, the story of First and Second Kings is one of decline. It is one of decline. And where we'll start, as I already said, is the glory of David's kingdom. So what, what you need to know from the out, outset in terms of the king, David, and his kingdom is that we're going to start on a very high note. Uh, it's kind of a bad scenario when your greatest days 
uh, are the first chapter of the book. <laughs> when the high note is the first chapter and the rest of it is downhill from there. But it's interesting how many books of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, are like that. Uh, but the books of First and Second Kings is like that. We start with the glory of David's kingdom and the initial glory of Solomon's kingdom. But what we get to by the end of Solomon's reign is the division of the kingdom. You know your biblical history just a little bit. By the end of Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel is divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, whose capital is Jerusalem. And if that wasn't bad news enough, by the end of First and Second Kings, not only will we see the division of the kingdom, but we will, be, we will see the devastation of both kingdoms. As the northern kingdom of Israel is taken captivity by Assyria, and the southern kingdom of Judah is taken into exile by Babylon. So what we start off with is the high note, the glory days of the Davidic kingdom, the initial glory of Solomon's kingdom, and the temple, the glory of the temple. All of that to be squandered by Solomon in the division of the kingdom, and then ultimately the devastation and the destruction of both kingdoms by Assyria and Babylon. So it sounds like a bad story. All right? We start off good, there's a downward spiral until we kind of sputter out at the end, and uh, you, at the end of the book, you're kind of left wondering, well, what the, what's this all about anyway? I think our study guide captures it really well when they say First and Second Kings display God's enduring faithfulness amid great opposition and against all appearance. If there's anything that would describe the books of First and Second Kings and the wicked kings that we see listed there is opposition. How in the world is God going to fulfill his promises? How in the world is he going to bring his glory out of this situation with this wicked king and that wicked king and this idolater and that idolater and the persecution of God's people, the division of the kingdom and the destruction of both kingdoms? How in the world is God going to fulfill his promises here? But these books reveal just that, that against all appearances and against seemingly insurmountable opposition, God is faithful to fulfill his promises. And that's what these books are going to teach us. Let's look at some of just the basic overview, introduction of the book. Uh, things that we usually do when we study a book of the Bible is we try to understand these main headings. The date of composition. The date this was written, this is a very helpful date, I think. Sometime after 586 B.C. Uh, 586 B.C. is the, the, the end of the siege on Jerusalem. The walls are destroyed. If you were with us Saturday for our leadership workshop, we talked about a lot of this with Dr. Wolf in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, the walls are destroyed. The temple is destroyed. The city is destroyed. It's the end of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. This is the last conquest that leaves God's people decimated. We know that it's sometime after that because by the end of the book of 2 Kings, we see a historical recount of what happened in those days. So whether it was being compiled all along, which is very likely, uh, just like Chronicles, kind of as we were going through, uh, authors were composing these things, inspired by the Holy Spirit, obviously. And then by the end, they put it all together and recount the destruction of Jerusalem there in the last chapter, if that's how it happened. However it comes to pass, the book is completed and compiled after 586, the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. Uh, the author is unknown. I don't know uh, how many opinions are out there. I'm sure there's some that say Elijah or Elisha or um, 
some prophet, maybe Zadok the priest, maybe some other priests or kings. Uh, the authorship is unknown, but here's the thing. The authorship is ultimately um, unimportant because God, by his Holy Spirit, inspired whoever wrote and whoever compiled what had been written into this inspired history. When it comes to the topic of inspiration, like, well, how do we know this is from the Holy Spirit? You know, a, a lot of governments, a lot of kingdoms back in that time recorded their history. You know, there's not one ancient civilization that doesn't have a record of their kings and a record of their conquests and the wars they fought. Uh, why, is the, why, why is this record of Israel and Judah, why is it so special? Why does it wind up in a book that we consider to be inspired by the Holy Spirit to be not just the history of this ancient people, but the very word of God? Uh, if you want to do some fun research, go and look at some of those historical records of ancient empires. Go and look at some historical records that were written by kings and military leaders. Look at how they recount their wars. You'll see that a lot of times, even when these ancient kingdoms lost a war, when they write their history for their people, guess who wins the war? They win the war. Their kings win the war. There's not a lot of shaming of your own kingdom and your own people. It's interesting when we turn to the Bible, especially in these books, whoever the authors or the author was or were, they are not trying to paint a different picture of Israel and Judah other than reality. They paint the people and their kings as often wicked, disobedient, idolatrous, and the end of the whole story, as we said, is their own destruction. Not many ancient books, in fact, I would say not, not any ancient histories of ancient peoples would have included these things in their histories, but the Israelites did. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there's something to be said there about the authenticity and the honesty that we see that comes from these people in their own history. The themes we're going to see throughout the books of First and Second Kings, uh, God's judgment, God's blessing, those lights are off, and God's sovereignty. God's blessing, God's judgment, God's sovereignty. Uh, as is the case with a lot of the books of the Old Testament, I mean, even back in Exodus and Deuteronomy, we went through Judges last summer. You remember this cycle. God blesses his people. His people turn away. God warns his people. God judges his people. He brings them to repentance. He blesses them back to sin, back to calling them to repentance. We have that cycle. We'll see that same cycle in the book of Kings. We'll see God's judgment, his warning against those who disobey, his promise of blessing for those who do obey, but his ultimate sovereignty over everything, regardless of the people's obedience or disobedience. Which brings us to the theological note. The main themes theologically will be God's faithfulness and God's king. Notice singular king. Look briefly there at the outline if you want to. And if you've got a study guide, uh, this outline is the same that's in there. I, I just included the main headings here. But your book, your study guide, will detail a little more under those main headings. We will go from the reign of Solomon to division and decline of the kingdom. We'll uh, look at the prophet Elijah and this kind of temporary renewal amongst the people. Uh, King Ahab, even after the death of Jezebel. Uh, the ministry of Elisha, the prophet that comes after Elijah. Jehu and Jehoash. 
and, and what we see there is God's judgment on the people. That cycle kind of continues. He calls them to repentance. They repent. They come back to him. And there's reform in the kingdom, only to be followed by further decline in the northern kingdom of Israel and their destruction by Assyria. King Hezekiah, the deliverance of the southern kingdom of Judah. The reforms under Josiah, remember they discover the book, bring back out the book and read it to us, the book of the law, and there's mass repentance, only to be followed, of course, by more decline and the fall of the southern kingdom of Judah to Babylon. So if you're just looking for a big overview of what this story is, that's it. Uh, the, the glory, the decline, and the fall of the northern kingdom and then the southern kingdom. But this book, these books, are about, as you can tell, kings. And what we will do is we will trace the history of the people of Israel and Judah through the lens of these kings and their rulers. And the first one that we're going to come across in 1 Kings chapter 1 is, of course, we're going to... Am I going backwards? That's what's going on. There we go. Theology, God's faithfulness, and God's king. The first king we're going to study tonight and next week is King Solomon. We're going to start with the good stuff, the wealth and the wisdom of Solomon. And in the first two chapters, we see how Solomon comes to power. Now, Solomon's story does not begin just there in 1 Kings chapter 1. Of course, we see he's already been born to David and Bathsheba back in 2 Samuel. Solomon's rise to power, and this story really starts way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn over to the book of 2 Samuel. We're just going to look at two verses in chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. Now, when you get home, you might go back and read all of chapter 7. There, there's a long prophecy by Nathan the prophet here, uh, but this is the core of the promise. This is what we call the Davidic covenant, the, the Davidic promise that God was going to raise up one of David's sons to reign on his throne forever. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, the Lord says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, so if you, you mark in your Bibles, you will want to highlight those two verses, underline star, and if one word is more important than any others, it's the word forever. I will raise up one of your offspring, one of your sons, to sit on your throne, restore the glory of my kingdom, build a house for my name, and more importantly, he will reign forever. So as we come into the book of the kings, even as Solomon is born later in the story, that is the hope, that is the promise that is on the people's minds, certainly on David's mind. I mean, surely, I don't, I don't know how much God explained to him at that point. Now, David goes on to pray, and he says, this is far beyond my understanding, because we're not just talking about my lineage, we're talking about eternity here. David understands what forever means. He says, this is far beyond my comprehension. I don't even know what God means by this. So what he fully understood or not, I don't know. What the people understood, what Nathan even understood, or Samuel, who knows? But as we go into the reign of Solomon, 
We think maybe this is the thing. This is the one. This is the one who was promised to come that will build a house for the name of the Lord and that will sit on David's throne in glory and restore the glory of his people. This is the one that's going to reign forever. And of course, when it doesn't turn out to be Solomon, maybe it's the next king. Maybe it's the next king. Maybe it's the next king. And by the end of First and Second Kings, I've already told you, it doesn't end well. The people are looking at God's promise and they're wondering... Where in the world is God's promise? What, what is our hope? What is our comfort now when all seems lost? Book of First and Second Kings is here to remind us that that promise of God is sure and that he is faithful to keep it. First and Second Kings is here to remind us of that promise and God's faithfulness to keep it. Even when the people are not faithful. Even when the people are disobedient, we see God fulfilling his promise to David here through Solomon, first of all. 1 Kings chapter 1 begins uh, with the decline and the death of David. But before David even dies, look at 1 Kings chapter 1 verse 5. Now remember, keep that promise in the back of your mind. The promise God made to David, one of your sons will reign forever. Look here at 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 5. Now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, exalted himself. There's a key phrase. Exalted himself, saying, I will be king. Uh, lots of not good stories in the Bible when people exalt themselves. Uh, I don't know if the author meant to echo the words of Lucifer here, but uh, he does. I will be king. I will exalt myself above the heavens. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and fifty men to run before him. And his father, who is David, his father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? So his father didn't keep him in check. David never kept Adonijah in check. He never asked him, What are you doing? What are your plans? What are you doing with yourself? He was also a very handsome man. So it seems he was spoiled. He exalted himself. But he's also very handsome. And he was born next after Absalom. He seems to have the right. He conferred with Joab, the son of Zeruiah, Zeruiah, and with Abiathar, the priest, and they followed Adonijah and helped him. Watch this in verse 8, though. But Zadok, the priest, and Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and Nathan, the prophet, and Shimei, and Ray, and David's mighty men were not with Adonijah. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if they had a theological reasoning not to be with Adonijah, not to back him, not to support him. But when he began to exalt himself and to say, I'm going to be the next king. When no one had said that, David wasn't keep him in, keeping him in check one way or the other. He hadn't said, you're not going to be king. But he never said, you're going to be king. But he decides he's going to exalt himself. He raises up his own army, brings his own priest, his own prophet. Except we see the priest and Nathan, the prophet, and David's mighty men, his most faithful warriors, are not with Adonijah. In this opening section, Adonijah and Solomon are meant to remind us of Saul and David. If you notice just that little note there in verse 6. He was also a very handsome man. Takes us back to when Israel chose Saul to be king, doesn't it? We want a king just like all the other nations. We want a mighty man, a good-looking man. We want him to look the part, just like all the other people, except God had not chosen Saul. 
He gave in to the people's decision. He gave in to their sinful decision, handed them over to their sinful decision to choose Saul, but God had already chosen David. And he chooses David even in the middle of Saul's reign. I think this little note here is meant to remind us of Saul, this guy who exalts himself, who looks the part, who has an army, who has a priest, who has a prophet, but he has not been chosen by God. Who has been chosen by God? We go on to read in verse 11 that Nathan comes to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king? And David, our Lord, does not know it. So Nathan tells Bathsheba, you better go in to your husband and you better tell him, uh, Adonijah has done this thing. Did you know about this? Because it seems that sometime in the past, David had sworn to Bathsheba and God had promised to David that it wouldn't be Adonijah, but it would be Solomon that would reign. Look at verse 30 of chapter 1. As I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, Solomon, your son, shall reign after me, and he shall sit on my throne in my place. Even so will I do this day. So Nathan goes in and reminds David, Bathsheba, or Bathsheba goes first, then Nathan comes in and tells David, hey, remember the promise you made? I don't know if you know what's going on, but Adonijah has exalted himself. You said Solomon would be king, so what are you going to do about it? And David says, you're right, I did swear that before you and God, and I'm going to send Solomon to be king. Verse 33 of chapter 1, the king said to them, take with you the servants of your Lord, and have Solomon my son... Ride on my own mule and bring him down to Gihon. So they come, and in verse 38, Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, and Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and the Cherethites and the Pelethites went down and had Solomon ride on King David's mule and brought him to Gihon. There Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the trumpet, and all the people said, Long live Solomon! And all the people went up after him, playing on pipes and rejoicing with great joy, so that the earth was split by their noise. So we have this anointing of God's chosen king, even as this other king had already exalted himself. The guy who looked the part, the guy who exalted himself, made himself king. God had chosen another in this promise to David, and then the prophet goes to anoint him. You see these echoes of that story of David and Saul, don't you? Saul was still king. God sends Samuel the prophet out to the house of Jesse to anoint David, though, as king. And so in all these echoes, we see this person who exalts himself while the other, Solomon, is passively exalted by God. In other words, Solomon wasn't seeking the crown. He wasn't trying to fight Adonijah for the crown. But God had chosen Solomon. Solomon was relatively inactive in this whole thing. And while Adonijah puffs himself up and basically crowns himself, Solomon doesn't. And God chooses Solomon to reign. As we come into chapter 2, we see David's charges to Solomon. Verses 1 through 4, um, well, we'll just read verses 1 through 9 of chapter 2. When David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. 
Be strong and show yourself a man and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you also know that Joab the son of Zeruiah did to me, how he dealt with the two commanders of the armies of Israel, Abner the son of Ner and Amasa the son of Jather, whom he killed, avenging in time of peace for blood that had been shed in war, and putting the blood of war on the belt around his waist on the sandals of his feet. Act therefore according to your wisdom, but do not let his gray head go down to Sheol in peace, but deal loyally with the sons of Beraz. <laughs> Berzeli and the, Gil- the Gileadite, and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom, your brother. And there is also with you Shimei, the son of Gera, the, Benjamin- the Benjaminite from Bahurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I, be- when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord, saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless, that's Joab, Joab, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do with him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. All right, so there's two charges here. In those first five verses and in the last four verses, we see David charge Solomon to rule in two distinct ways. Number one, with righteousness. Be sure to obey all the commandments and all the statutes and all the rules that the Lord revealed to his prophet Moses in the law. That is righteousness. And then he charges Solomon to rule with justice in not letting this murderer Joab get away. Now, it's interesting that David has let Joab to this point live. And you can read back in First and Second Samuel how Joab at different times was advantageous to David. So we could do a lot of speculation as to why David leaves him alive. But then he tells Solomon, now that guy Joab is a rat and you need to go kill him. But he's got blood on his hands. And so David says, do justice to him. He's the king. He has the power of the sword. And he tells him, go and take care of him. So we see those two pillars that David says, Solomon, you need to rule with righteousness Solomon, you need to rule with justice. As David dies at the end of chapter 2, or the middle of chapter 2, Solomon's kingdom is established. Look at verses 10 through 12. Then David slept with his fathers, and he was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. It's a biblical generation. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. So Solomon sat on the throne of his father, David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. Now, what we read after these verses is Adonijah comes back into the picture. Earlier, Adonijah had appeared before Solomon, sworn, 
basically, I'm sorry I tried to be king. I know you're king. I know you're king now. Now, if you know the way kings typically are, they don't, they don't want any other family members sticking around that might want to be king. So uh, up until even the Middle Ages, you know, Mary and Elizabeth and, and all the, the drama that happened in England, you got another sibling that wants to be queen or king, and there's this danger that they might rise up an insurrection against you you kind of get them out of the picture. And so Adonijah knew, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in trouble. God has made Solomon king. He knows I wanted to be king, and he might come after me to kill him. But Solomon lets him go in peace for now. As we go on reading in verse 13, it says, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, came to Bathsheba, the mother of Solomon. He said, do you come peacefully? He said, peacefully. Then he said, I have something to say to you. She said, speak. He said, do you know that the kingdom was mine? And that all Israel fully expected me to reign. However, the kingdom has turned about and become my brother's. For it was, it was his from the Lord. So he acknowledges this. And now I have one request to make of you. Do not refuse me. She said to him, speak. And he said, please ask King Solomon, he will not refuse you, to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. Now it's not detailed really clearly earlier in the book who this person is uh, and why she's such a a pivotal figure. But as David is about to die there in the beginning of chapter 1, this Shunammite woman is brought in. And uh, the the whole purpose, and we could get into the theology and the morality of all this later. It's not time to do that. But the whole purpose of bringing this beautiful young Shunammite woman to David was uh, to see if David was about to die, let's just say it that way, or if he still had some years left in him. So they bring the Shunammite in him, and if you see at the beginning of chapter 1, the young one, young one was very beautiful, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, and she was of service to the king. Uh-oh, my battery's running low. Uh, and attended to him, but the king knew her not. The king knew her not. So there's no relationship that occurred there. She was of, of service to the king. But what a lot of the scholars and commentators say is that basically she was counted as one of the wives of the king. She was counted as part of the king's court. She was counted as maybe a concubine or some other uh, maidservant to the king. And that belonged then to Solomon. So when Adonijah comes and asks for her hand in marriage, there would have been this inference on Solomon's part that maybe, just maybe, this guy wants my kingdom. And I told him if he ever shows his face again and and any of this sort of stuff comes up, he's going to die. And so surely here in the middle of chapter 2, King Solomon, chapter 2, verse 25, sent Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and he struck him down, that Adonijah, and he died. So between God's choosing of Solomon and now his only other competition to the throne eliminated... Solomon's throne and Solomon's king, kingdom is firmly established. There seems to be no other competition, and Solomon goes on to reign in glory and in peace for a while. Let's think about David's charge to Solomon. David charged Solomon to reign with righteousness and with justice. The question we should ask is, did David always rule? with righteousness and justice. No, we know the story. Bathsheba's right here, front and center in this story. We know how this happened. There was murder, there was rape, there was adultery, conspiracy. David did not always reign with righteousness and justice. 
And so even the height of the kingdom, the glory of the kingdom of David is tarnished. And there isn't perfect righteousness and justice. And so when we ask the next question, as he charges Solomon, you reign with righteousness and justice. Did David reign that way? Not all the time. Will Solomon reign that way? Certainly not all the time. So what do we do with these charges? Where is the king who will reign with perfect righteousness and justice? Secondly, can Solomon possibly be the fulfillment of God's promise of one to reign forever? I don't know what David understood or didn't understand, but he knew there was something beyond his comprehension about this promise that one of your sons will sit on your throne forever. He knew this was beyond his understanding. And as we go on to read the story of Solomon, and I've already kind of told you how it ends, not good, and then the rest of the kings come and go and they die, we're left wondering, if Solomon's not it, who could be it? Who can possibly come that will reign on a throne forever? What kind of king is that? What kind of man is that that reigns forever? With those questions in mind, we move on into chapters 3 and 4. And I would ask you just immediately, without it being up there, actually it is up there, if, <laughs> if Solomon is remembered for anything... It is his request for wisdom from the Lord. Anybody knows anything about Solomon? He's the king that asked God for wisdom. We see that here in chapter 3. I want you to notice something before we even get to that request. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. Solomon loved the Lord. Great. Good news. Walking in the statutes of David, his father. Good. Righteous king. Maybe he is the one. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Only he made sacrifices and offerings at the high places. Uh, Circle that word, high places. High places uh, means other places than the temple. So uh, Solomon was sacrificing in places that were not sanctioned by God. Now, we could get into debate, and the scholars do debate whether this meant that Solomon was engaging in outright idolatry, or was Solomon simply trying to worship the true God, Yahweh, in a way that God had not said. In fact, the way that God had prohibited. He said, you will not worship me on these high places. Uh, High places in the ancient world with the Canaanites... Uh, and, and all the people that that represented. High places is what it sounds like. Places on mountains, places on hills. And so in their finite little minds at that point, they thought well, the gods are up in the air, the gods are in the sky, and so if we want to worship them, we need to get as close to them as we can. So the high places, the hills, the mountains, that's where the gods were. And if we could get up there and worship them, and I'll let you do your own research into how Baal worship went down, they would go up onto these high places, engage in these acts of worship to these false gods, and they thought that they were closer to the gods, the gods would see their sacrifices and their worship, and they would reward them. And so God said, that's not how I operate. I'm not up in the clouds somewhere like these pagan gods you think. I reign from heaven. The earth cannot contain me. And so even when the temple is built, and God says, that's where you're supposed to worship me, at this point, the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, don't go to the other places to worship me. That's not how this works. 
So even here before Solomon asks for wisdom from the Lord, we have this little warning. And I think that's the word that you'd have in your blanks there. We have, before we get to that famous request, we see a warning of things to come. The next one there, Solomon knew, though, his inadequacy. Solomon knew his inadequacy and asked God for guidance. He asked God for guidance. Look at verses 7 through 9 of chapter 3. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, see humility, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? See if I can get down there. So Solomon knew his inadequacy, and he asked God for guidance. Now, first of all, yeah, he said, I, I can't do this on my own. I need your help. Uh, what would any other king, certainly ancient Near Eastern kings, ask for from God? Give me wealth, give me riches, give me power, give me victory, give me military success, give me long life, give me a long reign. Uh, sure, all those things. God said to him, verse 11, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself, long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. And what does God go on to say? Not only will I give you wisdom and discernment, but I'll give you all those other things too. I will give you glory and wealth and wisdom. Solomon is the picture, at least for now, Solomon is the picture of a godly leader. Solomon is the picture of a wise leader because we see his heart and that one thing he gets the opportunity to ask of God is not glory for himself and not wisdom for his own self. But what does he say? For the sake of your people. That's a godly leader, a selfless leader, a humble leader. And God sees that humility. He sees his heart for his people, not for himself. He says, Solomon, I'll grant you not only the wisdom and guidance you ask for, but I'm going to grant you all that other stuff as well. Solomon's wisdom, next there, is demonstrated to bring glory not to Solomon, but to God. Solomon's wisdom is demonstrated to bring glory not to Solomon, but to God. Look down at verse 28. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king. Why? Because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Now, you know the story that precedes this. It is the one glimpse we see into Solomon's wisdom. Have these two prostitutes, and they live together. They both have children. Uh, one of the children dies. The mother rolls on to him in the night, and he dies. And she goes and takes the other and pretends that it's hers and puts the dead one with the other one and pretends that that's hers. And so still, so they come to Solomon, and the woman is accusing, saying, this woman stole my child. He's dead. My child is really alive. Remember what Solomon says? All right. Cut him in two, and, and let's see what happens. And Solomon knows that the heart of that mother, the heart of the true mother, of the child that's living, 
uh, could not be swayed in that way. And of course, she asked for the child's life, and Solomon says, let her have the child. That is her true child. And so this is this just one story, just one story of Solomon's ju- judgment and wisdom that uh, kind of rings throughout the kingdom. But the point of it is there at the, verse, at the end of verse 28, that when all of Israel hears of his wisdom, when all of Israel hears of his guidance and his leadership in this matter, in this one matter, just to start with, they perceive that the wisdom of God was in him. It's interesting, they don't perceive that Solomon is just so wise. Or, man, isn't Solomon just the best leader ever, though I'm I'm sure they said that. It's, we perceive that the wisdom of God is in him. It brings to mind this question, how is wisdom different from mere knowledge in the Bible? And any, any king, any ruler could just have, uh, we can have all the head knowledge, we can have all understanding to rule, to reign. And King Solomon certainly had the knowledge he needed. He had all the people at his disposal. So what's the difference between knowing what to do? Wisdom, though, if you remember from Proverbs, what, what is the beginning of wisdom? There it is, yeah. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And it doesn't say knowledge. Anybody can have head knowledge. Anybody can know how to be a good king, how to be a good military leader. Anyone can have all the military might and wealth to make this happen and have their own power. But wisdom, according to the scripture, and Solomon probably wrote that proverb, the beginning of biblical godly wisdom is not mere knowledge. It's not power or riches or anything else of the earth. It is the fear of the Lord. And so wisdom kind of comes to us in the Bible. I know there's a lot of sort of um, kitschy ways of saying this out there that, you know, knowledge is uh, the head stuff and wisdom is knowing how to use it, and that's okay. But in the Bible, there's a difference between just simply knowing something in your head, knowing how to do something, and that which comes from a love and a fear and a devotion to God. And so God praises Solomon. God is pleased with Solomon's request because he does not ask to rule of his own power and his own might for his own glory. But he wants to rule the people well for their good and for the glory of God. And even in that first little instance we see there with the story of the two prostitutes and those children, the people see the wisdom of Solomon and they attribute it to God. 1 Kings 4, then, as we come into chapter 4, represents a sort of golden age for Israel. We see the glory of the kingdom of Solomon. And we're supposed to see here echoes of the reign of David. That as David comes to the throne, having killed so many Philistines, there's peace in the land. He expands the city. He builds the wall. He has plans to build a temple. We see the glory days of Israel. We see that echoed here from his son Solomon in chapter 4 in this short-lived golden age. In chapter 4, verse 20, listen to this language now, and you want to circle this verse. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. Sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. The people were many and the people were prosperous. Furthermore, down in verse 34, people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. People from All nations revered Solomon for his wisdom, 
this golden age, the people are multiplying. They're as many as the sands on the sea. This is a reminder of God's promise. If you want to turn with me to Genesis chapter 12, you can. I'm going to read it to you. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. If the background information leading us into 1 Kings is 2 Samuel chapter 7 and God's promise to David, then even behind that promise to David is this promise that God makes to Abram. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless you, I bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Later, how does God say this promise will look? You will have descendants that are as many as the stars in the sky and the sand by the sea. As many as the grains and the sand by the sea. That will be the promise I make to you, Abram. Your offspring will be great in that way. And now we come to 1 Kings chapter 4, this golden age of Israel, this little short-lived golden age under the reign of Solomon. And what does God say by the author of the book? That the people were as many as the sand of the sea, and all the families of the earth, all nations, revered Solomon and were coming to learn of his wisdom and glorify the Lord for his wisdom. This is a reminder of God's promise even back to Abraham. So we have David, now Abraham, and all of it, it is God who did this. Go back to verse 29 of 1 Kings chapter 4. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding. It was all from God. God who made the promise to Abram, God who made the promise to David, God who is now bringing this to pass even in the reign of Solomon. So we have the question then, don't we? Is this the fulfillment of God's promise to David? It seems pretty good right now. We see this this language that brings us back to Abraham. The people are multiplying. There's prosperity. They're eating. They're drinking. They're happy. All the nations are coming to learn of God and to learn of Solomon. And they're glorifying God for the wisdom they see in Solomon from God. And so it makes sense that we might think this is the guy. This is the one. God is fulfilling his promises. Somehow Solomon is going to be this one king that is going to reign forever and forever. That God promised David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So what's it all about? As we go through these first four chapters, we see the rise of Solomon in these early glory years of the reign of Solomon. Understand this, that the story of the kings, the story of Solomon, is the story of the people. The good, bad, and the ugly. Whatever happens to Solomon... Whatever happens to the kings that will follow Solomon, we see these little snapshots of what's going on in the nation itself. Right now, everything's great. They're obeying God. They're trusting God. Their wisdom is from God. The nations are pouring in to see what's going on here. It's the glory days. So that's the good. But as we go on, we're going to see the bad, and we're going to see the ugly, and we're going to see how that will mirror 
the decline of the people and the nation as well. With 2 Samuel 7 in mind, remember that, the promise to David, one of your sons will reign on your throne forever. With that in mind, we see one failure after another. Right now, Solomon's doing great. Next week, we'll see he doesn't do so great. And we'll see every king after that, with the exception of two, will not do great. And the story will not end well. And so with the exception of those two, and even then, there's some failure. We see one failure after another, after another, after another, after another. And you might say, well, why in the world is this here? Well, what good would this do the people? What, how is this edifying to them? Well, number one, to show that their hope isn't in these kings. These are not the kings you're looking for. Star Wars, episode four. Yeah. These, <laughs> these are not the kings you're looking for. That's what God is saying, as Obi-Wan said. These are not the droids you're looking for. God promises, though, a king to reign forever. That promise should still be ringing in our minds that he made to David. A king will reign forever. One will sit on your throne forever. And David charges Solomon, you need to reign with righteousness and with justice. David didn't reign with complete righteousness and justice. We know Solomon will not reign with complete righteousness and justice. So how about centuries later, when the prophet Isaiah is speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, carried along by the Spirit of God, Isaiah is still prophesying another coming king. It wasn't David. It wasn't even Solomon. But Isaiah says, Unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now I want you to listen to these words. Of the increase, in other words, of the glory days of his kingdom, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom... To establish it and uphold it, watch this, with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is way after Solomon. David wasn't it. Solomon wasn't it. And by Isaiah's time, he's still prophesying of a time when this one king will come and the government will be upon his shoulders and he will reign with perfect righteousness and justice forever on David's throne. We see that story come to light throughout the rest of the book. While God's promise to bless his people is conditional, his sovereign will is not. In other words, we see God's promise to raise up this king throughout the entire book. And we might be tempted to think that although the people fail and as the kings fail, that God's promise will fail. That his promise is conditioned upon what they do and how they behave. Now, there are things that are conditioned about what they do and how they behave. Their blessing in the land, their time in the land, the glory of the kingdom, their goodness, their prosperity, their multitude. All, all of that is promised if they obey God. But God's sovereign will to raise up this king 
is not conditioned on their obedience. In fact, Isaiah will go on to say that this king that God promises to raise up is raised up to deal with their disobedience. It is in spite of their disobedience and their failure that God promises to raise up this king. So although his blessing and their prosperity is conditioned upon their obedience, God's sovereign will to do what he wants is not conditioned upon their obedience. God raises kings and God casts them down. God gives and God withholds blessing. In our closing moments tonight, I want you just to look at Acts chapter 2, a few verses here. Acts chapter 2, we're not going to read all these verses, but I want you to see a few things. This is Peter, now uh, filled with the Holy Spirit after the day of Pentecost has happened, and he's preaching the gospel to all these Jews that are sitting there, and he begins to quote from the Psalms and from the prophets about this king that God promised to raise up. And of course, all the people in their minds are thinking, David, King David, where is King David? Is this the restoration of David? Listen to what Peter says, starting in verse 29. Brothers, Acts 2, 29, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is still with us to this day. So it's not David. It's not Solomon. It's not any of those other kings who have come and gone and died. Who is it then? Verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, who? Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Oh, the apostles understood from the beginning. It wasn't David. It wasn't Solomon. It wasn't any of the other failed kings that came after them. But God's one anointed king is Jesus, his son. David is both dead and buried, but Jesus is alive and well, and he is reigning eternally from his heavenly throne. Even now, ascended to the right hand of God the Father, sitting at his right hand, Peter says, from whence came the Holy Spirit, whom you now see and have heard. He will come again from that place of glory to bring the fullness of his kingdom to earth. He will come again to bring the fullness of that kingdom to earth. Did you notice earlier that when Solomon was anointed king, or he was about to be anointed king, David um, did something that would seem pretty peculiar, I think. I want you to go, Solomon, and get a, a mule, a donkey. I want you to ride into the city of Gihon and, and so proclaim yourself king. Coming in, riding on this mule. Jesus entered Jerusalem in like manner on a donkey. And we could dispute about mule and donkey and all that good stuff. It's, it's, it's not a grand white horse, is it? It's not a chariot. He comes riding on a lowly beast of burden. Jesus comes riding on a donkey. What is he identifying as? A king. Zechariah 9 verse 9 said, Behold, Israel, your king comes to you, humble 
and mounted on a donkey. Matthew quotes that in Matthew 21.5, even as Jesus comes into the city, Matthew says, this is was to fulfill what was pro- spoken by the prophet Zechariah. Behold, your king comes to you humble and riding on a donkey. And here in 1 Kings uh, chapter 1, verse 33, Solomon comes in riding on this donkey, declaring himself to be king. Later, Jesus comes riding on a donkey, declaring himself to be king. But unlike Solomon, Jesus will come again. And he will not be riding on a donkey, but will be riding on a white horse. Revelation 19, verse 16 says, as he comes then, riding on this horse, what is his name going to be? King of kings and Lord of lords. And here from the very beginning of the book of Kings, we see this one Solomon who is raised up in glory and might and wisdom and blessing. And we would be tempted to say, this is the one, this is the guy. We know on this side of the cross that he wasn't the one. David wasn't even the one. Jesus is the one. And though he came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey 2,000 years ago, he will come again in glory, riding on a white horse to judge and to rule and to reign over all things as the king that God promised to establish his kingdom with righteousness and justice forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for this opportunity to be together and to study your word. Thank you for this picture, these portraits of these kings we see, men, sinful men like us, raised up to rule your people at this time and that place, men who you used, men who you raised up, men who you cast down, all of them pointing us to you, the one king of kings and lord of lords, the one king who reigns forever in righteousness and justice. And God, we thank you that our hope is not in a president, our hope is not in a king or an earthly kingdom or an earthly empire. Our our hope Our salvation, our redemption is in you, our King of kings and Lord of lords. God, help us to long for the day when we see you. Whether we die here, whether you come before we die, we long to see your face, to be at peace with you, to see your glory and your kingdom established on this wicked, sinful world. God, help us as we go through this book and these books and these stories to long for that day even more. As we see the failures of these people, And their decline and their destruction warn us of our own sin and our own idolatry and point us to the cross and the empty tomb, the gospel, the good news which saves us from our sin and our death and our condemnation. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Send us from this place with your peace and your mercy and your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.